We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. My guest today is Melinda Whitstock, who was dubbed disruptive by her grandmother at a young age. And it's a label she proudly lived up to as an enterprising female founder of several companies. While a business reporter for the London Times in her early 20s, She gained a lot of insight into entrepreneurship and building a business from scratch. After climbing the ranks of the news media world, she helmed the development of a crowdsourcing app, News IT, founded and ran Capital News Connection, and is CEO and founder of Verifeed, a company that helps businesses leverage social media to grow. Most recently, she founded Wings Media and hosts the Wings of Inspired Business podcast, where she interviews women entrepreneurs. Seeing a need for podcasters to better monetize their businesses, her company developed Podopolo, an app to help podcasters grow and monetize their audience. While she's always been involved in the world of media, Woodstock sees herself primarily as a problem solver and an innovator, hallmarks of any entrepreneur. In the podcast, we talk about how working from a mindset of abundance rather than scarcity is one of her primary motivators. Now. Let's get better together. Melinda Whitstock, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jari. It's great to be with you. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I know you're super busy building Podopolo, which I had about 20 minutes to try to figure out how to say (laughs) properly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we like to challenge people. Why not? Yeah, well, I mean, it's memorable once it sticks in your head, for sure. Um, and so I, I really want to talk about that because it's this interesting, kind of exciting, innovative podcasting network where you guys are really trying to do some good stuff. Um, but but before we get into that, I always like to kind of hear the journey that you've been on to get to where you are. And so why don't you kind of give us the nickel tour of, of how you be doing what you're doing now? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think my grandmother really was the first to diagnose it. I was five years old and she said, you're disruptive. And uh, I don't know if she meant it in a good way, but, but I, I, I took it to mean something good because I'd, I'd just gone around knocking on doors with my black lab demanding prepayment for my show. <laughs> 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 I came home with 
like a hundred bucks because it was like a dollar like back then and i said to my dad where can we get a hundred chairs you know that prompted the you're disruptive um and i've never really looked back like i think sometimes with entrepreneurs it can be trained but it's also kind of in your dna i i i can't not do this um, and so it's taken all kinds of twists and turns over my life with lots of different businesses. You know, Podopolo is my fifth and I've built four others to seven and eight figure success and all across different things, you know, across traditional media, kind of uh, new media, crowdsourcing, things like that, social media, networking, marketing, um, uh, AI and unsupervised machine learning algorithms to parse and filter that content for relevance and reliability. I mean, all kinds of different things. And it's funny because each one of these businesses, I look back now, uh, was my lab for what I'm doing now. It all kind of makes sense. You know, you proving out different aspects of of what is ultimately uh, Podopolo. But I've, you know, along the way, I was also an award-winning journalist and I joined the London Times when I was uh, 22 and had the immense privilege of covering business and finance to begin with on the paper and met so many amazing entrepreneurs and CEOs. And I was the type of journalist that always liked to know where the story was going next and really understanding like not only those people, but what they were, what they were building and doing. So I had a ringside seat to learn from a lot of the best, you know, whether it was Richard Branson or interviewing Steve Jobs, um, all sorts of people before going on to cover media for the paper and then becoming a pundit on television, which led me to become a news anchor and 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 on besides before the entrepreneurial bug really bit and created my first adult business in like 2002 with capital news connection um and so yeah it's been quite a journey i mean it's been ups and downs along the way which is part of the entrepreneurial the you know the entrepreneurial thing and i've, I've come to just love the innovation creating new things kind of out of whole cloth um, and just, you know, very iterative, you know, uh, test, measure, build like that. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, solving, solving problems, you know, that you see for people. Uh, so that's really the, the big motivation. Whoa, that's, uh, that's a lot. Um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I've lived a long time. Well, okay? yeah, you don't. No, it doesn't. No, I wouldn't say that. You have just <laughs> this wealth of experience to share is what I like to say. Um, as I, you know, sometimes mentor young entrepreneurs to kind of figure out their journey as well. But I, I really am fascinated by the journalistic part of your career and how that launched into kind of what you're doing now. Um, so you've seen a lot of transition in journalism. My guess is, I mean, a couple of people that I've talked to that have been journalists, they're actually a little sad that it's going the way it's going. Um, what, what, what do you feel about that and how like, it's almost like the new journalism, which I hate to say, but um, you know, the clickbaity stuff and the different types of media and, you know, papers behind paywall and just a different, it's like a different world now. What's sort of your take on that? Gosh, yeah. How long do you have? I mean, <laughs> it, it was in, it was interesting because at the time that I became a journalist, newspapers were still printing money. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. it was the one-to-many model, and and that was that. And uh, and it actually mattered to be right. You know, <laughs> that oh, was actually okay. That was actually something that actually mattered, um, and and then it kind of changed to being first, and then figuring it out in a bunch of you know memes later. You know, um, but but uh, you know that aspect of it somewhere along the, the way, content lost its value. It all sort of became free. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and with that, I mean, obviously the, the old journalism model got disrupted and it got disrupted in a way that I think ultimately is good, but there are a lot of bumps along the way, um, you know, to get there. So right now what we have is basically a free for all where everybody's a journalist, um, even though they're not, 
And it's really difficult for a regular person to try and figure out what's true, what's not, what's a conspiracy theory, (laughs) what's been investigated, you know, all that. So, you know, that's that's worrisome in a lot of ways, you know, for our democracy and whatnot. Right. Um, On the other hand. Um, the trend that I see coming back, and, and this very much informs Podopolo, is content, good content, has real value. The question really isn't so much that, but the question becomes, how does it get monetized? So when I look at podcasting, for instance, uh, you know, when I became a podcaster several years ago with Wings of Inspired Business, and it started as a passion project, just affirming and claiming the entrepreneurial journeys of women and what it takes for women to succeed um, in entrepreneurship. It's a little bit different. We approach it a little bit differently. Um, and how do we get funding and all that kind of stuff? So I started that podcast and I was astonished to learn that 85% of podcasters don't make any money from their content, despite the fact that it is a digital media where you should be able to do that. And it just evolved in such a way, I think, born of the times that the RSS feed was created, that, oh, all content's free. And people just started to go along with that. So that's something that we're disrupting because we think podcasters in particular are creating amazing content of tremendous transformational value to the people who are listening and like deserve to be paid for it, be able to monetize it. So that's one of the things that that informs uh, you know, the podcast network. Uh, we have a lot of different ways of doing that, which we can get into. But I think with journalism, it's a, it's an interesting time because uh, truth or whatever, um, you know, is kind of in the eye of the beholder. Facts have become, I don't know, relative, right? Yeah. I'm not, <laughs> people yeah, people I, confuse facts and opinion. And there's yeah. no real arbiter. Like when I was growing up, there was like Walter Cronkite, right? And what he said was, was, was it. Yeah. So, you know, like anything, I think there's a lot of really good things about uh, what's going on now in the sense that people are empowered to, to, to contribute to the news, crowdsource content and all of that. I'm a big proponent of it actually helps journalism in a lot of ways. Hmm. Um, but on the other hand, uh, you know, there needs to be some sort of societal agreement on like what facts can we actually agree on? And I think that's a real challenge. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I don't see any source of truth. And that used to be journalism or to, to the to the most extent it could be. I mean, everyone's got an opinion. But I mean, like the Walter Cronkite example is beautiful in that way, because you sort of trusted the guy, you know, you're like, you know, he probably did his homework. And you know, there, there was a certain societal and fiduciary responsibility that journalism and the news had. I mean, it was almost like, what do they call it? The fifth estate? Is that what it is? Or? Yeah, that's right. I mean, actually, I mean, what's interesting, what really happened, and I was covering this at the time as a, a media correspondent on the Times, you know, cable came along, then there's this new thing called the internet, which by the way, this is a funny story. Rupert Murdoch told me, oh, Melinda, you're writing too much about the internet. Like it'll never amount to anything. <laughs> <laughs> like, hmm. Uh, he was right there, Rupert. <laughs> so, you know, but... uh it was interesting because there was a certain point where all media got deregulated and it used to be that newspapers and television stations had very strict rules, you know, regulatory rules, right? That they had a certain public service quotient, you know, they, whatever. But, but the real thing that happened is they suddenly became public companies. And at the moment that you're a public company and you're on that hamster wheel of quarterly results, um, and, you know, suddenly there's tremendous pressure to cut your investigative budgets and cut newsrooms and all of that, like all the people who are going out and doing that kind of shoe leather journalism. So there's not a lot of that anymore because it's just simply not funded. And so what you have instead is a whole bunch of cable news networks, right, that have 24 hours to fill, but there's not 24 hours of crisis, so they create 24 hours of crisis um, because that keeps the eyeballs on it. And it's, it's, and that's, that's the business model. And, um, and it's, it, it can be addictive, just like Facebook can be addictive. You see on Facebook, the posts that get the most traction are the ones that are divisive. Um, 
you know, um, and and uh, those are the ones that get elevated by the algorithm, just like on cable news, the sort of stuff that gets elevated is the stuff of conflict. And it doesn't necessarily represent what's really actually true in most people's lives. Um, but it makes them think that that's how the world is. And, and that's, that's really in sharp relief during coronavirus and everything that's going on with Black Lives Matter and, and all of it right now. Yeah, no, you're totally right. I mean, I, I, wouldn't it, didn't it used to be like, if it bleeds, it leads was like the mantra. Well, yeah, that was, that was totally true of local news, you know, like the 11 (laughs) o'clock, 11 o'clock eyewitness news or whatever. Right. It was sort of the ambulance chasing and fires and this and shootings and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. All the sensational stuff to keep you afraid. I mean, that's partly why I don't listen to the news and or watch it. I I try to kind of get a digest of it and, my my thought process is if it boils up to me, it's probably important because I've got all these kind of filters in the way. Yeah. Um, used to be really interested in it, but I just don't like the negativity. I mean, I understand that you have to, you know, show facts and whatnot, but it just seems like the clickbaity, you know, everything's a crisis and you just get inundated. I mean, you're cortisol level you just get these cortisol crashes if you watch it all the time i mean it's really true it's like actually bad for you there should be like a warning label like a health label on it like cigarettes or something i I mean it's true i struggle with that because as a i call myself a recovering journalist and as as a there should be an aa or something for that but anyway (laughs) as a as a as a recovering journalist i feel often the impulse to, to know what's going on, right? Because uh, that's part of my background. And on the other hand, you know, I'm a big believer in mindfulness and meditation yeah. and, and you know, what you have in your brain and your subconscious and your conscious, whatever, really dictates the kind of day and the kind of life you're going to have. And so I have to really limit it because it, it does affect us and and it does keep us in fear and it can really stop us from having the kind of lives that we're meant to have so yeah i know you're right about that for sure wow so so what are the trusted sources of news that you go to well it's interesting for me because i worked in the media for so long i got a sense of who were the journalists that I knew did the shoe leather who were really good and had integrity um, and, and whatnot. And I, I, I like to try and get perspectives from all sorts of different people, but you know, I'm the type of person that I'll, I'll read something in the New Yorker or, or the Atlantic or something like that. I'll um, every now and again, I'll check into someone like Rachel Maddow on MSNBC um, or I will, I, I like to kind of check out the other part too, just to know what, I like to know what other people are saying. Um, But it takes me back, actually, you're making me remember something way, way back in the day. Um, I used to do a thing on BBC morning television. It was the newspaper review and there were uh, 11 or 12 national daily papers in Britain at the time. And I would go on and do this paper review And it was kind of funny and a little bit satirical, a little bit just like, I don't know, uh, but it was also meant to be informative. So in that two and a half minute segment, you'd get a full sense of like, okay, what's in the newspapers today so I can sound smart at the water cooler and I don't necessarily have to read all of them myself. But here's what I discovered. Often, reporters on different papers would be using the same facts, like the exact same facts to come to totally different conclusions or <laughs> they would just have completely different facts. Huh. Um, and, 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 and it was hilarious, except not. Yeah. No, um, and, then, and, then, and then subsequently, when I was running Capital News Connection, um, Capital News Connection was a really innovative uh, political news agency here in Washington that um, covered uh, Congress. Um, and uh, from a localized perspective for initially public radio stations and then TV stations and newspapers and digital properties all across the country. So our approach was to look at an issue, dig really, really deep into the issue, really get our facts straight, and then look at how it was going to, that decision was going to impact locally all over the country um, and the different perspectives of the lawmakers. And, and we would find that we would often get news releases from like at six o'clock in the evening, right on deadline, 
from, you know, both uh, political parties that would do the same thing, same facts, totally different conclusions or just different facts or whatever. And, 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 and it's really, really difficult for a journalist, even the best, most uh, accomplished uh, person of integrity and honesty and the person who really gets it right, they're still up against it because there's a limited number of column inches or airtime. Uh, you're looking at it through your own eyes, which are inevitably biased, like because they just are. We all have different life experiences and different lenses that we look at things. Uh, you're choosing which uh, you interview someone for an hour. You're choosing which of two sound bites you're going to use, <laughs> right? And then wow. you're trying to figure out how to put it in context and do all that in 15 minutes. Yeah. So it's, it's really difficult. It's like when you actually break it down, journalists have a really tough job. So I have like a sympathy for what they're up against. But then you do have journalists who are just in it for the ego and like don't really care what they were. You know what I mean? Like, you know, so I have kind of a sense I guess, of who I can kind of trust over time. But then I'm not like most people because I, right. I, I have this background in right. it. So I already have that, that sense of context so I can spot it more easily. I think to ask like the, the regular person to try and do that is, is way too much. People have jobs, lives, families, businesses, friends, yeah. <laughs> just a lot of other stuff going on, right? <laughs> and so it's really easily to be misled. And I think the interesting thing that you say about clickbait, and also this all came up in the, the whole fake news yeah. issue, right, right, in the last campaign, yeah. was that there were people that were specifically pointing dif disinformation at people based on what they knew about them from their social conversations and behavioral, emotional kind of algorithms and sentiment type algorithms to figure out how they were going to, you know, use maybe it's a classic disinformation propaganda, yeah. how you're going to use one fact and then put a whole bunch of lies around that fact. And then, and then you get into confirmation bias where people want to believe it. And so then it becomes very difficult to disent disentangle. And, and I've seen really good people that I love on all sides of any issue get into terrible arguments yeah. <laughs> about things where actually they agree on more than what they're disagreeing. So I think it's a terrible, that, that piece of it is, is, is quite frightening actually um, no, in a lot of ways. No, I agree. I mean, I, I do this PR and marketing stuff, you know, based on my late wife's um, business and, a lot of times people ask about crisis communication and, you know, how to spin the narrative. And I've always found that, you know, even the same facts, as you mentioned, even if those same facts are like the same, people interpret them differently through the lens of their bias. And it could be bias Absolutely. or experience or whatever. Um, but what I've found, and I don't know, I would love your thoughts on this. What I found is if you, if you kind of take it to the next level above the kind of the noise and try to get to the core of what it is like that everyone can agree on, then it starts to like be a little bit easier to kind of figure out like who's quote unquote lying or manipulating the data. I mean, anytime both parties agree on something, chances are it's probably right. <laughs> but when they kind of disagree, it's like, huh. so it, it, I mean, have I, I'm, the reason I'm asking this, cause I find it really fascinating that podcasting, I think, and I'm with you, um, is, is this medium where there's a lot of great content. People are having these long form conversations. You can have context. You can kind of like develop an idea. And it's really like, I personally think a, a public service and, and probably going to be the new, new, new media or whatever that, that people are going to trust more and more. And I'm, I'm just curious on again, like what are some like things that people can look for? And as well as do you find that bringing it to that common ground where like, okay, everyone agrees on this fact is the way to go or what are some of the... Actually, it's funny. You're reminding me of a, the, the next business that I did. It was called News It. News and it, it was w way ahead of its time. And it was actually built to solve this problem. Oh, great. Um, uh, and and it was it was one of those businesses, though, that was way too early. Like, it yeah. would be good now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what we were doing was really interesting. We had pattern recognition and 
and unsupervised machine learning algorithms and natural language processing, unstructured data search, a whole bunch of really intricate backend stuff. This is like 2011, 2010, 2011. And it was a crowdsourcing app where everybody could contribute to the news. And so it was taking crowdsourcing and sifting all those different takes on the same issue um, or on the same event and then parsing those through to find commonalities oh, wow. and find outliers. Wow. And, and sometimes the outlier was actually the correct and sometimes oh. the commonality was correct. But if you take a whole bunch of people, say you put 20 people and, and they all witness the same car accident, I swear to God, like half of them would disagree on the color of the car, you know, oh, totally. So, so it was kind of with that in mind, it was very sophisticated, very ahead of its time so much. So, and this is a really funny fundraising story. So news, it was kind of out in the world. We had about 500,000 users on this app, which was amazing because it was pretty much built on fumes. We didn't really have a lot of funding um, uh, yet. You know, I think we'd raised like $500,000 or something at that point. And um, I would go into these investor meetings and people would say things like, so Melinda, what makes you think user-generated content is going to be big? <laughs> and, I, and I would point to, I'd say, well, there's this new thing called Twitter, you know, and there's like Facebook, <laughs> that's still in colleges, but I think, you know, people are actually like doing it. And, and then they'd say, okay, well, that's cool, but you're putting all your eggs into the mobile basket. Like, <laughs> why would you do that? Because like, what makes you think mobile is going to be big? And then I like point to all this research, you know, saying this. This is how it's going to grow, you know, whatever. And then the next question would be, okay, so assuming that you're good on both of those things, you're going to have all this different content. So how on earth are you going to manage like all the different content you're going to have? And then my answer would be, well, there's this new thing. It's called the cloud, you know, so we're going to use that. Right. And like the investors are just like, from their <laughs> perspective, it was just too many points of risk. Right. Yeah. Which like I can, I can totally. totally see now, but this company, that's what I mean about being bleeding edge yeah, totally. is a terrible place to be as an entrepreneur. And if you're a visionary, like I am, uh, that's really hard. And I, I, you know, I, I, I tend towards those sorts of things, but I was very passionate in solving exactly the problem that we're talking about on this podcast, which is hilarious. And I, I look back, now and I think, well, that would really work now. No, for sure. Um, right. But I was solving a problem that people didn't even know they had. Yeah. And I, 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 I knew they had it. They just didn't know they had it yet. And that's like where the product market fit isn't quite aligned, you know, on time. And it was an interesting lesson. But to turn it back around to podcasting, I mean, I think podcasting is really, um, there's a reason it's the fastest growing media. Like 123 million Americans listen more than six hours a week. That's bigger than any other media kind of like ever. And, and, but yet there's this disconnect because um, very few people are making any money from it. I mean, the podcasters sure aren't and the advertisers really aren't either. It's that they're, they're putting, this year, podcast advertising will go up to about a billion dollars. Um, that's out of a bucket of like $327 billion in digital media spend. Right. And so there's this big disconnect, fastest growing media, and yet people haven't figured out how to monetize it. So that's really what we're doing with Podopolo. Um, but uh, podcasters develop this they tend to focus on niche topics and niche audiences so they and they tend to talk about the things of which they have deep domain expertise and and sort of a transformational outcome that they kind of want to see in the world and it engenders itself to tremendous no like trust so there's a lot of mini Walter Cronkites around right with like really loyal audiences but they're small audiences because they're niche right, right. and that's part of the monetization uh, struggle because historically in media, um, ad buys have been around really, you need like large numbers, kind of like Joe Rogan style kind of numbers, yeah, but sure. podcasting doesn't really suit itself to that. So how can you monetize these kind of small, smaller audiences and really the tech and all the stuff we did back in the day at Newsit and then later Verifeed and all of that informs Podopolo too, because because we can really understand people. Like, first of all, I'll just say it's socially interactive and gamified. So as people take all different actions to inter in interact with the content and each other and put lessons learned into action, you know, they're winning all these rewards and prizes. As they're doing that, we're learning a lot about them, right, in terms of their interests and 
and their habits and influence and demographics, location, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that means if an advertiser says to us, well, we'd really like to reach women um, who have uh, young babies and they're concerned about clean household products and organic food and yoga, we can say, right, yeah, these 37 podcasts. So it means that you don't really have to have a large audience if you know who your audience is and you know a lot about them, then you can solve that particular monetization problem, do a better deal for advertisers and a better deal for the content creators and give content creators, you know, the power to actually profit from their work, you know, and share in the revenue of, of what they, what they attract and, and also um, enable them to, really, uh, yeah, like monetize their content through that engagement and serve their audiences better. But I, I, I do think that podcasters are more trusted, you know, than most. And yeah. I think that's a big part of the part of the, uh, the growth of it. I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. When you when you hear someone's voice, and you've spent longer than a couple of minutes, maybe 10, 15 minutes, and they've got your interest, and they have an interesting guest, or they're talking about a topic that really, you're passionate about, and you start to know who they are. Um, yeah, I think you see that a lot. I mean, especially like in the sports podcasting world, which, you know, sp- sports fans are just well, fanatical may not be the term, but they, <laughs> they, I mean, they're, they're into what they're doing. And if you are successful in the sports podcasting realm, it's because like really people are engaged with your content. Cause it's a one, it's a tough thing to be able to do because not only do you have to talk about a sports team, but you have to have, of course, all the stats and all that. I mean, you're basically a little, you know, a mini sportscaster on commentary, you know, color commentary and stuff. And um, Absolutely. And you have such a tribal situation, too, like right. almost like politics. Like it's like, uh, exactly. you know, like sports is more fun. You know, I always look at politics and say, why is this this like boxing match? Like you might as well watch the real thing anyway. But the but <laughs> yeah, like so you you've got to get it right on facts. Um, otherwise, uh, you can't be trusted in a situation where you have a whole bunch of different listeners and viewers who all have different, you know, teams well, they support. And right? and everyone's got access to the statistics, so it, it's not <laughs> like you can fake it. <laughs> you have exactly. To, you literally got to so, know what you're doing. So maybe news should like mimic that a little bit more. Uh, you know what? I mean, it's actually a really good point because I think if we can all agree on the facts then the discussion's a lot more interesting, to be honest, right? Because, I mean, you can debate, like, if, you know, giving the sports analogy a little more breath, you can debate on, you know, if the 49ers in 1988 were better than the 49ers now. You can debate all these things because there's statistics that matter. And then now it's like, okay, you know, was Kobe Bryant the best basketball player? Was Magic Johnson the best? Whatever. Well, yeah, there's numbers. So now we have numbers. Now it's just a question of, well, what was the league like? It's my opinion. That's really exactly. just Exactly. So I think journalists could do themselves a big favor and the rest of the world along with it by saying, okay, so this we know to be fact because, you know, you know, again, the old journalist rule of two sources or, you know, yeah. I think it should be multiple sources. But, okay, we can separate this out as fact. But this other stuff is opinion, conjecture, stuff we don't know yet. You know, the theory is, you know, but being very careful with language like that. I think there's a real responsibility I learned that uh, very much, you know, when I was at the BBC because I was broadcasting on BBC World Television into countries like India and Pakistan at the same time, which have nuclear weapons pointing at each other and like hate each other. And like to the point where you couldn't even get a rep, you know, a representative of India or Pakistan to sit in the studio in the same studio at the same time. Like it was that bad. Um, And so to broadcast into those countries and have both of them equally like you or actually equally dislike you was as long as it was equal, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Well, (laughs) I mean, that's a great example, right? Like, you know, two, two parties that have a huge disagreement, hate each other roughly and you're trying to report on them accurately so that doesn't escalate a tension where they shoot off nukes at each other. I mean, it's the exactly. ultimate. It's the ultimate, yeah. And yeah, no, I mean, so no, true. I, I, so, I so think that's a great idea because uh, what I've seen, it, and the reason I bring this up is that right now during all this crisis communication, people are trying to open up their, their, their countries and their cities, and there's just a lot of, of tension and anxiety 
And what I found when it comes to that fundamental crisis communication and trying to, you know, figure out like the right thing to do, that when you can bring it to a level where everyone agrees on the facts and the facts are undisputed, then people feel a lot more comfortable that at least the decisions are being made, whether they're good or bad, right? I mean, who, you know, when you're in uncharted territory, you make the best call you can. Um, at least there's a process and a method. And the money driving in news today where they get paid for how many people they outrage, which I think is true. It's a true model. I mean, I think you mm -hmm. brought it up and, and I agree with you, is not does not do that. Because the ones that are the calm, cool, collected with, you know, clear, concise and compelling stories, they don't get clicked on. I mean, they just, they just don't, you know. Right. It's so it's it's really true. And 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 that's but that's just the way it's it's a business model issue. Right. I think you're right. I think it's an absolute business model issue. And speaking of business models, um, you mentioned in uh, Podopolo that you're trying to give uh, or have the creators a share of whatever kind of profit there may be in, in the, in the, you know, in the community. I mean, how, how are you guys think about that? How do you go about doing that kind of modeling? Because it's, it is, you know, that's pretty unique or at least it's a start on something unique. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I, I think so. I think, uh, so there's a couple different things. I mean, we're, we're placing ads both on air and on the app and sponsorships for all the individual podcasters and podcaster genres, run of network, all that kind of stuff. And we have really interesting inventory too. It's not just on air, it's on the app. We have all these gamified quests and contests and challenges and whatnot that can be sponsored, which is great for the advertiser because they can really get that interactive engagement mm -hmm. and and they can put product um, in the hands of kind of like winners who feel good about it and share and all that good stuff. So, so, so that's innovative. And then on top of that, we're committed to sharing 20% of our net advertising revenue with all the podcasters um, in a true up, you know, prorated year on year. So the first true up will be next July. And it's a combination of, you know, how big um, is their audience, but not just that, how well are they engaging them and how fast are they growing? And like, do they have daily, it's kind of complicated, but do they have daily active users, people engaging, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and you know, who does that in a similar way, um, is Kindle. Um, so Kindle will send out emails to the Kindle authors saying, okay, here's how much we have in the kitty, uh, this month. And, you know, depending on, I, I, I forget how they do it, whether it's to do with just how many, you know, like page, uh, pages, you know, read. Many, pages, pages read. read. Yeah. It's pages read. So, so, you know, similar in that sense, but we give uh, podcasters also other ways to earn money from the network as well. So some of it's just pure affiliate. If they bring in other podcasters, they get a nice 20% commission check. If they bring in sponsors, same thing. And then what's really cool is we also have a paywall and um, on the app and an ability to gamify um, online courses and uh, other sorts of things as well. So a lot of podcasters use their podcasts as lead gen mm -hmm. into their business yep, yep. offer or into their course so they can have unlimited calls to action, you know, on the app to, to engage people in public and private communities, kind of like Facebook, except they're shared interest communities. So you have none of that flame throwing. They're really, you know, <laughs> I like, people. I like how you put it as flame throwing. That's an absolute perfect analogy. I mean, right. And so like they're, they're shared interest communities. So everybody's kind of like in it together. So you can do that. You can put some of those behind a paywall as like a private mastermind. You can do on um, video streaming. Uh, you can do all kinds of different things. Um, and, you know, and your course, and you can sell all that stuff kind of in-app as well. Um, and in a way that doesn't, you know, most in-app purchases, you know, you're giving 20 or 30% away to Google. We found a way to not have to do that, um, in which case you're giving some money to us, but not anywhere near that 30%. So there's multiple ways, uh, you know to make money from podcasting, which is something that we really wanted to solve. And from a user perspective, too, I mean, people who are just there listening and viewing and engaging, they're earning points 
Um, some of these things are kind of virtual high fives, like, you know, badges and achievement and things like that. But a lot of it's actual physical product or a discount to an offer or like, you know, you know, oh, wow, you just want a free week of life coaching or you, you won a ticket to some event, like whenever we start having events again, or you won this or, or whatever. Um, and so there's, there's, there's a monetary benefit also for the, just the, the users and listeners, uh, to engage. And then it's a much better return on investment for advertisers and sponsors as well. So I'm a big believer in creating, I, I'm a big abundance mindset person. Yes. I'm a big believer in creating, you know, value at every intersection. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting business model. It's very different from most scarcity driven ones. Um, this one is very much focused on like everybody wins. How can everybody win? Yeah. Um, as simple as that. Yeah, no, that's a great way to put it. I mean, I'm, I'm of the same mindset. I, I think um, abundance is the only way to go. I think that's how you create even more uh, equality in the world. If you think of how to to make everyone prosper and expand the pie, then you're you know you're you're thinking of the right things. At least exactly in, 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 in my opinion. And one thing we didn't even mention is we're committed to uh, giving 10% of our earnings every year to charities, minority-owned businesses, mission-driven entrepreneurs who are really uh, tackling some of the major problems that we have in society, you know, whether it is racial injustice or whether it is, um, uh, you know, poverty or poor education or poor healthcare, lack of clean water, or climate change, like whatever it is. Um, and we incentivize the podcasters and also the users of the app to engage in quests and challenges and things like that around some of those mission impact type things as well. So, so we think that, that, that business, and I've always been a believer in this, that entrepreneurs ultimately conscious ones <laughs> are going to be the, 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 the people really who innovate to figure out a lot of uh, really in, like innovative solutions to a lot of the world's most pressing problems. And so we're really committed in that way as a company. Oh, I, yeah, I agree. I, I think they're the only people that can because, yeah. you know, I mean, governments, the role of government is to have an equal and fair playing field for which to operate, you know, a country and a society and of course for the common defense and everything but they're not going to optimize or and or innovate when it comes to you know <clears throat> trying to make things a little bit better in for certain types you know certain people or certain not some people i mean that's not their job they don't optimize that way and in fact you don't want the government to optimize for profit because <laughs> then well you know, yeah there's a little bad. bit too much of that going on right well that's now, true actually, that 100% i mean it's it's a fine line and i mean i learned this I used to be of the opinion before I started volunteering and, and being involved in some local pol politics stuff, used to be of the mindset that, oh, we just have to make government more efficient, right? And I had this whole efficiency thing until I started to realize that it really wasn't the goal of government to be efficient. It was the goal of government to be fair. Mm -hmm. And when you realize that, you're like, okay, we have to make it fair first, efficient later. But when we also need to have, again, they don't think in abundance mindsets. They think scarcity because they've got budgets and constraints and they're they're all process driven. I mean, most of the time it's the process matters. The, the outcomes don't matter, right? Entrepreneurs' outcomes matter. Process doesn't matter as much. Yeah, Go, exactly. You know. They're not measured. They're not measured in the same way. So they're measured right. sort of, you could say, at the ballot box, except not really because no. they're really measured by how much money they can raise. And then once they're raising all that money, which takes most congressmen and women and senators like a third of their time, yeah. sometimes a half of their time, they're then beholden to those interests. And so when I, when I heard that, at Google, okay, which is a big innovator with like driverless cars. I, mean, I just like innovated in so many things. They actually spend more money on lobbying Washington than they do on their R&D budget. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I know someone that works in their policy department, which their job is to not, they're not lobbyists per se, but they try to inform government on what Google is doing and how it will impact society and try to get favorable terms. I mean, it's like, 
you know, it, it, sometimes it's called corporate social responsibility. Sometimes it's called lobbying. Some, there's like a huge right. Of there's a lot of gray. There's a lot, a lot of, gray. of gray area. I mean, what gray. was so funny during Capital News Connection is you'd walk through any of the House or Senate buildings, and they were filled with lobbyists lined up outside each, you know, person's door, and you'd be like, "Hey, what are you asking for today? You know, what are you? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but but it's tricky, and that also ties back into the media as well, because right. if you actually, there are simple ways to fix that, but there's a lot of things, a lot of uh, you know, interest standing in the way of that. But if you if you say, for instance, shorten the election cycle and said, okay, the election is four weeks, everybody's got the same amount of money to spend. Um, God, how how nice would that be, right? So we're going to do this with this constant, like it's permanent election, oh, right? Know, and then awful. and then lawmakers could actually focus on what they're supposed to do, which is like make laws and, as you say, make them fair. Um, and and yet uh, a lot of the twenty four hour news channels would just go under, right? <laughs> yeah, no, they <laughs> would. I agree. Dollars, I totally agree. But then that might be a good thing too right so i think i mean i i think so i mean we just can't we're getting to the point where there's so much noise out there that the entire level of static is just even worse so you know noise you you know you you hear all people shouting in room but that all that that increases the level of static which that static is just nothing i mean it's it's like this hum that you have to yell louder to get above which then allows you to have more noise and then how try to get this your signal above it right it's just awful because you're monetizing a well i mean you know i i'm not against people making money don't get me wrong but like when you're optimizing for fear uncertainty and doubt and that's what gets you the money and so you know it's you're going to optimize for it. I mean, look at like Facebook ad algorithm. Look at Google ad. I mean, they're optimizing right. to get you to click on stuff. Yeah. You know? And so I, you know, I, I, I think, I think you're on the right track in the sense that people are going to be drawn towards, you know, these mini Walter Cronkites in the podcasting world that can have deep, meaningful conversations that are that can be fact checked. That can be like you know that you can let the argument breathe. That that that's the one thing I think is like the most powerful thing is I I have a lots of different types of friends like you do where they're all around the spectrum of politics and it you know we don't really want to talk about politics sometimes together because then we just spin up right. But when the conversation has some breath, some space for it. You notice that people sort of like have these standard kind of what they value and the reason why you're friends with them or they're your family. Like everyone has the kind of the same goal. They're just going about it in different ways. And I really think it's powerful what you're doing um, mm. or trying to do because I think people are going to need to figure out the podcast, how to make money at podcasting. Yeah. And just to, well, we do because it, it obviously has tremendous value, but there's a misalignment of their, the, of, of lack of reward for tremendous value. Um, and so it's a, you know, I, I, when I look at the podcasting world, you know, there's so many podcasters who go into podcasting because they have something really important to say or share with the world, a, 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 a skill, a mission or whatever, but they don't necessarily have business um, experience or expertise. They're not necessarily marketers or let alone internet marketers. Um, they, they just don't know a lot of those things. And so they, they build it, they launch it, and then they scroll struggle to be discovered, struggle to, to engage and build a community. You know, they maybe build their email list a little bit, but that's not interactive. Then maybe the next best thing is they get those people over onto Facebook in some sort of group, but then Facebook owns those people, not the podcaster. Facebook's monetizing those people. And over time, Facebook's going to demand more and more money from you as an advertiser to be able to reach the community you yourself created. Right. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) And, and, and like that doesn't work. So like, we're, you know, solving that issue as well. I mean, I just, at the end of the day, I believe the best content is conversation. So podcasting is inherently conversational, but then when you can take that conversation to your community and your listening community and involve them in the conversation, that just makes it so much more powerful and illuminating and valuable for everybody. Um, And you can have these good conversations. So I think that really, I mean, there's lots of trends behind 
podcasting, but that's, that's one of them. And so, you know, um, you, you could train everybody to be really good at business, really good at internet marketing, good at all those things to, to be discovered as a podcaster. And it still wouldn't work because there's so many structural problems. And so we're, we're going at the structure. Wow. Well, Melinda, that's a great place to end because <laughs> this has been a great conversation and I've learned so much from you and I really do appreciate your time. This is, I mean, this has been super insightful. So thanks again. Well, I enjoyed any chance. I haven't had a good conversation about journalism in, in a long time. So that was fun, you know, um, but thank you, Jari. It was wonderful to talk with you and you asked great questions. Really appreciated the chance to be with you. Wonderful. Stay safe. Talk soon. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur, and frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA, and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in a new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series now streaming on Showtime. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour 3-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com